Well, once again, we wish to welcome each one of you. It's wonderful to be here in God's house today. I want to thank those of you that are viewing today. It's good to have uh, multiple people around this world and around our country that are taking part in this service. What a wonderful day to be in God's house, and we're grateful for the activities of this week. At the end of the service, we're, we are going to tell you about an event that's going to take place tomorrow evening, so uh, please don't rush out of here. We want to make sure that you're aware of some of the other activities, uh, not as, as if you have nothing to do. It seems like we got a full week, but um, we are looking forward to God's blessings and all that we do, and we are so grateful that we can be together today. I um, want to remind you, those of you that may be uh, new and viewing today or just tuned in to Evangel Temple, those of you that perhaps have been gone for a while, that we have uh, been in a series dealing with the parables of Jesus Christ, a series that I hope that has been informative and interest to you. I hope that there has been some spiritual transformation as a result of studying God's word and especially the parables of Christ. Today we are going to look at a, a special parable as they all are, but one that perhaps you are more familiar with and it's the parable of the talents. And um, a very interesting parable that I hope that as you uh, leave uh, today that uh, you'll have a, a greater appreciation for the parable of the talents. I um, do... Uh, take a lot of time to, to look at illustrations and various pictures that I can share with you. One of the difficulties in biblical times is, uh, you know, they didn't have the Dan Rockefellers with the photography stu uh, studios and the cameras, so I have to come up with things that help you to use your imagination. And as we enter into the uh, um, parable of the talents, and some of you are saying, hey, pastor, don't apologize, I like pictures and uh, we see here that um, there are those that are in this parable and it looks like there's a couple happy guys and one guy that's unhappy and then a master that's trying to figure out okay what's taking place here but I remind you as I do each week that Jesus uh, often packages spiritual truths and lessons of faith in a short relatable narrative known as a parable and these stories were his way of explaining the attributes and the greatness of God and instruction for godly living in human terms, terms that, that every person that was on the street could understand. And while Jesus also used sermons to communicate, he used stories to hold a special place in his ministry and his teaching style. Now, over the years, uh, I have learned that people surf, and especially working with young people. Young people, as uh, you adults and myself, were guilty of this. We can sit down in front of a TV and we can have that controller. And the next thing we do, we find ourselves surfing. We find ourselves looking at the guide to see what's on. And even then, we really like that uh, previous button because we may watch a couple shows at a time. And some of you that are multi-talented, you have split screens where you can uh, multitask. Some people can watch several uh, screens at a time. But working with young people, and as well older people, and grandparents, I know that surfing in our mind is something that's quite relevant. And so week after week, 
I try to tell a life story, a story that's happened to me or a story that can be related to. And oftentimes I've had parents come and thank me for the story that I told because it seems like teenagers have this knack to, to remember and stories are memorable. And the application of a story is something they can apply to their house, to their life within hours or maybe on the way home from a sermon or during the week. So stories I have found are easier to recall and to share with others. And for this reason, I think that there's very few stories that should have the clause saying the end. Because stories do not end there. Stories often travel with us. And especially in the case of Jesus' parables, many of his listeners were still thinking about the application well beyond the initial telling of it. And Jesus uh, um, would, would tell the story in such a way that often the meaning of the story or the message would be found on their own opposed to him or somebody telling them what it meant. It would sink in. It would take time. So today, the parable of the talents is one of those stories. It's one of those parables. In the parable of the talents, Jesus again uses a story to encourage his followers. You and I, and hopefully those that are listening today that have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that we must be ready. We must be ready for the return of Jesus Christ to be on alert, he says. High alert. For you don't know which day the Lord is coming. In today's parable, Jesus describes a man who's going on a journey. This particular gentleman must have wealth and he must have possessions. Like every one of us have special things that we think a lot about and things that we really love. If we were to leave or to go on a trip, who takes care of those things? I'm not talking about your dog or your cat or your canary. Uh, and those things are very precious to us. But items that we may have. So this man is going on a, a trip. He's going on a journey. And he entrusts his servants with his wealth and with his possessions in his absence. We all have possessions. We all have things, as I said, that are dear to us. Things that we hope to pass on to our children. But I'll tell you what, our children today aren't so tuned into the things that we, you know, uh, couldn't live without through life. For example, China. Some of you ladies, that was the big thing on your wish list when you got married. To have China. And China, uh, it was something that is so precious to many of you, maybe $100, $125 a setting. But I hate to tell you, we have a set of China that we've collected, and our kids really aren't interested in it. You know, They think it's just a fancy plate. They'll probably feed their dog out of it. <laughs> and there's some things that are precious to us, possessions that we have in life. Recently, I found a prized possession. It was sitting in a neighborhood not far from here. I happened to go to a home to identify a deceased person. And when I was talking to the neighbor, I was leaning against this possession. I didn't know what I was leaning against because it was so filthy dirty. 
But it turned out to be a Shelby Dakota pickup truck. It was a limited production performance vehicle or a version of the Dodge Dakota or the sports pickup truck that it was offered by Dodge. And it was through a gentleman called Carol Shelby. Carol Shelby, if any of you know anything about automobiles, was a very skillful American automobile legend. He was a designer. He was a race car driver. And he was an entrepreneur, and he was known best for the Cobra. He was known best for Shelby Mustangs. He was known best for the highly modification that he did in automobiles. And as the story goes, he was a friend of Iacocca. And Iacocca was with Chrysler at the time. The market was soft on pickup trucks. Carol Shelby said, I will make 1,400 of them for you. I will make 995 red ones, and the rest will be white. And so before you, you see this Dodge Shelby with not an emblem on it that says Dodge. When you go out the door today and you go out the cafe door to your left, there's a Dodge Shelby truck sitting there. One of 1,500 that were made in this world. The Shelby Dakota started with a short wheelbase truck. It was a short bed, it had a standard cab. This truck was a four cylinder truck that Carol Shelby put at the time a considerably large V8 in. It looked good on paper as they designed it, but once the engine was set into the truck, there was no room for the cooling fan. So Carol Shelby designed a cooling system, which is in front of the radiator, and their electrical cooling fans. I tell you this story because it's interesting how things are developed and, and used. Removing that belt-driven fan increased the horsepower of this motor, uh, roughly five horsepower. This truck, the Shelby Dakota, made in 1989, had special wheels and trim. There's not an ounce of chrome on this truck. They are individually numbered. I think mine is 358. Anything with Carol Shelby's name on it is a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. It is a possession with the special wheels at the time that this truck was built. It was the highest performing pickup truck in existence in the world because of the power to weight ratio, the positive traction rear end, the four speed automatic transmission. If you look at this truck and you're welcome to look at it, you will see Carol Shelby's name all over the seat covers, all over the floor mats, on badges that are in the truck. It's an interesting possession that initiated General Motors to make a pickup truck called the Cyclone. And after the Cyclone was created, then the Ford came out with the Ford Lightning. The production is low. The truck was $15,813 when it was new. It did zero to 60 miles an hour in eight seconds, okay? That's pretty fast, but yesterday I was in a car that did zero to 60 in 2.5 seconds. And it was a new Tesla that my kids have recently purchased. 
You see, it's all relative. It's a possession, but it's something that uh, at the time was pretty popular, and it was a great find for me, and it was so dirty that the truck could not be recognized. It sat visibly in a person's driveway for years, and nobody recognized it. Now it looks like this with a little love and care. Somebody stopped in my driveway the other day and took a picture of it and said, I want to take a picture of your Ford Ranger. Well, that's an insult. I said, no, it's not a Ford Ranger. But those of you that are motorheads or like high-performance cars, muscle cars and things like that, uh, you know that there's always people that are trying to race you. And I have uh, not a lot of money invested in my collection, but I know the money that I have. I'm not going to tear it up and take what I have home in a box because some idiot tried to race me. But I often will be sitting at a stoplight just like you in your minivan. Have you ever had anybody come up next to you and rev up their motor and they want to hear your minivan? Well, probably not. But it's not uncommon when you're in a muscle car that people will come up beside you and they want you to rev your engine up or say, they'll say to you, let me hear it. So you put it in neutral like you do with your minivan and you rev it up, except they don't hear your minivan, but they hear my cars. So you're in neutral, the light turns green and everybody takes off except you. Why? Well, you can have the quickest truck in the world. You can have the fastest vehicle in the world. One of the most expensive cars that I have watched go through an auction was a 1963 Ferrari 250 GTO. And I watched it go through for $40 million. Four wheels, a chassis, and a car. That car now is worth $70 million. But you can have the fastest minivan in the world. You can have the fastest pickup truck in the world, the fastest John Deere, the fastest motorcycle, and don't ever try to race a motorcycle because it'll eat you alive. But if you don't put it in gear, you're just going to rev the engine. You're going to sit there. And our scripture today is a scripture that tells us that we are useless unless we put ourselves in gear spiritually. We are useless. We can have all the muscle in the world and we can have a great history. We can have wonderful parents. We can have, you know, a great spiritual heritage. But today, we're going to get to think that you and I are some pretty big engines useful engines. Or perhaps we're like a powerful engine that's left in neutral and not in gear. We're like a supercar. The greatest designer, the greatest engineers, we can have the greatest performance and there can be years spent developing the product or you and I and we can have amazing potential. But are we going to reflect on today something that tells us that we must be in gear instead of sitting at a traffic light going nowhere. Let's look at our text this morning. I'll be reading um, out of Matthew, the 25th uh, chapter, verses 14 and on, and I encourage you, if you have your Bible, if you're at home, you have your Bible in front of you, I'm reading from the NIV, and the NIV is not always the way that perhaps we heard the text because there's words that have been changed. 
But let's look at it, 14th verse. Again, it will be like a man that's going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold. Now your scripture may say five talents. To another, he gave two talents, two bags of gold to another, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey, and the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the one who had received one bag went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money, the talent, the one talent, which in today's terms is probably $4,000. And after a long time, the master of these servants returned and settled the accounts with them. So the man who had received five bags of gold bought the other five, brought the other five, Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold and see what I've gained, five more. His master replied, well done, good, faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things and I'll put you in charge of many things and come and share your master's happiness. That's a key phrase there. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came and he said, master, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. The master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness. Well, then the man who had received one bag of gold, master, he said, I knew that you're a hard guy, hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out, and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown. I gathered where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put your money on deposit with the banker. So when I return, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him, and he gave it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and thrown that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Wow. Nothing about happiness for that guy. It's interesting. He says, at least you could have put it in the bank. I checked my bank the other day, and I think they're paying 0.4 interest. So this story is hard to relate to today because of the investment. But you, you understand what's taking place here. The first lesson we see when we look at this text is all that we have actually belongs to God. The items that we have. The parable of the talent here teaches us that the story begins with Matthew, the 25th chapter, verse 14. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth or his property to them. So even as Jesus sets the stage here, Jesus is telling us this morning, as we look at the scripture, something that's very important, that you and I have an entrustment. You and I have 
ability. And everything that we have is given to us by God. Do we see ourselves today as stewards? Or do you see yourself as owners? How do you look at yourself? That, the answer to that question makes a big difference on how we conduct our life. Because a steward lives for the day that he or she will return the master's goods to him. And an owner believes that his or her possessions are his to spend in any way or hers to spend in any way that they see it. We all have material goods. We all have abilities. And even our very lives belong to someone else. Our lives belong to God. We are merely holding them for the day of reckoning. In this parable, we find that the the man or the master is Jesus. And the servants are you and I. God has entrusted us, and what we have belongs to him. The second lesson that I see real quickly here is that the parable teaches us that success is actually a product of work. Many of you have jobs, and some of you are retired, and others of you that even you call yourself retired, you're very busy. In the book of Genesis, we see that God placed Adam in the garden to work and to take care of it. And we're all made to work. Some people are going to have to go back to work this week because I understand some of the benefits have been cut off. And hopefully that's going to help all of us. It'll make our weight shorter when you go to a restaurant. It'll make our car get worked on much quicker. And as Christians, we have a mission that our Lord expects us to accomplish in the here and the now. There's an expectation expectation of each one of us and I conclude in my personal opinion that there's far too many evangelical Christians today to see their salvation experience simply as a bus ticket to heaven in other words they believe it doesn't matter what they do while they wait for the bus doesn't make any difference and the parable of the talent teaches us where we are supposed to and what we're supposed to do while we wait for the return of Jesus Christ. We are to work using our talents to glorify and to exalt God. We are to serve the common good. We are to be people and followers of Jesus Christ that build the kingdom of God. And biblical success is working diligently in the here and now using the talents that God has given us, the ability to produce the return expected by the master that we can share in his happiness one day. The third lesson that I see real quickly here is that we learn that next that each servant has a different amount of money entrusted to him in this case, according to Uh, Matthew, the 15th verse here in the 25th chapter, each according to his ability. Everyone receives something, but not everyone receives the same amount. That doesn't fly today in our culture. You see, people think they got gypped in life. There's other people that say, I didn't have a chance or I didn't have an opportunity. Wow, that goes against the scriptural principle here. We're all given something. In 2021, it's tempting to complain that we have not received as much as somebody else. 
but we can be sure that God himself has given us the ability to care for what we have. In other words, we are responsible and not only responsible, but we're able. We are able. The parable of the talent, the next lesson here, teaches us that God always gives us everything we need to do what we're called to do. Interestingly, we're tempted to feel sorry, I think, for the servant that only received one talent, but in reality, he received as much dollar-wise from the master, but he buried it in his backyard. I mean, he, in today's terms, he received about $4,000. And, you know, we can feel sorry for him, but he buries it. He was given more than enough to meet the master's expectation. The master didn't set him up to fail. And just as the master expects his servant to do more than passively um, preserve what has been entrusted to them, so God expects us to generate a return by using our talents towards a productive end. And the servants were given enough to produce more, and it is the same with the gifts that God has given us. Look at Ephesians, an interesting chapter in the second chapter the 10th verse where the apostle Paul he he writes for we are God's handy what we are his handiwork we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do we seldom associate this parable or even this verse that we're looking at with our work but I think we should I'm honored, my wife and I are honored that this church is going to honor us next week. We'll have a lot of friends here. There will be people from our community, people of other faith. And we are so honored, and I want to thank you. I want to thank the board for taking this time to recognize the years that we put in. And it's, it's an honor and pleasure to serve God. And I pray that one day I'll be able to share in his happiness that one day when Jesus Christ comes, that I'll be able to share in his happiness because of a work that I have done. And along with each one of you, it hasn't been done by myself, but by an army of support and board members and teachers and choir directors and music people and just everyone makes it happen. This is a... Uh, kind of a difficult weekend for all of us because those of you that are old enough, we reflect back upon 9-11. 9-11 is something that's affected every one of our lives. Let me tell you in one small way it's affected my life. Right off, right out of the box. I was flying shortly after 9-11, and I don't know if I can thank John Ashcroft for this, but um, I lost one of my favorite knives. It was in my carry-on. Now, we've lost maple syrup. We've lost all kinds of things. They've taken it away from us. Man, I had this great knife. My favorite knife, I bought it in Switzerland when we were traveling in Switzerland once. And uh, the knife was made to be used more than just sticking in the ground or carving a tree 
or to uh, just be whittling something. I mean, this knife had a bottle opener. It had like 14 functions. It had a large uh, uh, blade screwdriver. It had a small blade screwdriver. It had a corkscrew, which I never used, by the way. It had a can opener. It had a Phillips screwdriver. It had a wire stripper on it. It had a reamer where you could make a big hole. It had a key ring. It had tweezers. It had toothpicks and um, scissors. It even had a hook on it. John, do you have my knife at home? Did that end up? (laughs) And it was taken away from me. And many times our gifts and our talents are like this knife. They're like this knife that God gave us something beautiful, something which uh, we can do a lot of good things with placed in the hands of the right person and looking to God to help us do it. Placing these gifts in God's hands, placing our life in God's hands. And then we can see how wonderful the gifts are. Like each one of you, we've been blessed this morning with an orchestra. We've been blessed. We've been blessed with a choir. And now you have the opportunity to learn how to play bells. And you can bless us. Take one of the blades of the knife that God has given you and put it to work. And maybe after we think about that a little bit, you may say, you don't want me in the bell choir. In Matthew, the 25th chapter, the 19th verse, the next lesson, after a long time, the master of those servants returned. And Jesus continued. He's telling us that his return here in this text, it's going to happen. We may not always feel like it's going to happen. It is going to happen. And upon his return, we are going to be called to give account according to the faithfulness that we use the gifts, the talents, whatever it may be that God has given us. And all of us are going to give an account. The second coming is not only about Jesus. It's not merely about others. But please understand it is about us. It's about you who view me today. It's about each one of us that is looking at me. In the last day, we will have a giant role to play. Which brings us to another lesson. The parable of the talent shows us that we're going to be held accountable. The parable of the talent is not about salvation. It's not about work righteousness. But it's about how we use or work to fulfill our earthly callings. It's about whole life stewardship. The unfaithful servant in this parable, he didn't do so much with his master's funding, his master's gifts that were given to him, the money. He didn't do, the unfaithful servant in the parable didn't so much waste the master's money. I think what he did, he wasted an opportunity. And I pray that we do not waste opportunities in our Christian walk. And as a result, he was judged. He was judged as a wicked. He was judged as a lazy individual. And it tells us that you and I have a responsibility for what we do for God with what has been given to us. And one day we're going to be held responsible. And what we hear from the master on that day, it's going to be up to us. Another lesson is that we find here to, that it's important to be faithful and to exalt God and share in the master's happiness. Each servant in this story presented the master with their story of stewardship. 
They tell their own story first, and the master listens carefully, but the master has the final word. And when the first servant demonstrates that, I, you know, man, I, I'm so proud I manage my affairs well, and the master speaks. And this perhaps is the most surprising aspect of Jesus' story here. The master invites the faithful servant to share in his happiness. I'm so happy. It's there in Matthew, the 21st verse. And sometimes we view, and some of you carry a lot of baggage because of the way you were raised, perhaps, in the Christian world. But I've seen it over and over again. And sometimes we view the second coming, um, we view it in such a way we're so centered on the judgment of God that we have overlooked the joyful nature of that event. We overlook his return as a joyful time. And perhaps this is why the Old Testament prophets referred to Christ's return in Joel, the second chapter, the 31st verse. You know how they described it? Great and glorious day of the Lord. And many times we consider it a time of fear. What a day that will be when Jesus we shall see. When we look upon his face and on his return, Jesus will look for those whom he can invite into his joy. And true, there will be judgment. But the master's motivation is to share, that we can share in his happiness with all of those who have longed for his coming. How do you feel about the second coming of Jesus Christ today? Is your heart ready? Consider your view of God. It's a lesson to be learned from this parable. Of course, Jesus also tells us about the third servant. The third servant presents his story to the master, and he gives him back that single gift that was given to him the gift that he received in the beginning. And even here, we can learn something about how to prepare for the return of Jesus Christ. The last servant viewed the master as what? He says, man, you're a harsh guy. He said, you are unrelenting. You're, you're such a taskmaker. And the servant's fear caused him to make unwise choices as he prepared for the return of Jesus Christ. What is your view of God? The final lesson we hear, see here is there's a lesson for us from this third servant. Perhaps we should see that our view of God will determine the choices that we make in our Christian walk. Do we see Jesus Christ today as a hard man? Do you see him as an unreasonable person that expects too much out of you or you can never uh, reach the expectations, unrealistic expectations? If we do, it's going to cause us to live in our current day in fear. It's going to cause us to be unprofitable when it comes to results. May God bless us that we exalt him often. And only those who eagerly look forward to the return of Christ can find the freedom and the confidence to live in the now. We had a great worship time on Friday night, and it was all about freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul understood this freedom, and we can experience it through the grace of God as we consider the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians. 
in chapter 12. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, I will, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. In this parable of the second coming, there's a depth of teaching regarding how you and I can prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ. And when he returns, he will look for those to whom he calls and extends the invitation to, and he will say, come and share in my happiness. This is a story that I recently read. It's an incident in Abraham Lincoln's life. It said that Abraham Lincoln had brought an aide one evening, it was a Wednesday night, to a service at a church in New York City. It was the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. And as they walked back home or as they made their way back, the aide supposedly asked the president how he liked the sermon. And Lincoln, he said, I thought it was well thought out. I thought it was very thorough. It was powerfully delivered, he said, and it was very um, eloquent. So the aide said, well, President Lincoln, um, so you thought it was a great sermon. And President Lincoln supposedly said, no, it failed. It failed. It failed because the preacher did not ask us to do something great. So my sermon today, you may trash it. You may say, hey, it's a good sermon. Wow, I learned about Shelby's and learned about those things. And I enjoyed it or I didn't enjoy it. But what it depends on is whether you put it into practice and I put it into practice. Because whether you take a risk or use the gifts that God has given you, that's what the action is, the motivation here. May God help us to get out of neutral if we're sitting revving our engines and use the power that he has given us, the power to carry those gifts and ability to build the kingdom of God. And today is your day to accept Christ if you have not done so. That Jesus is here today that we can start a life of exalting him. Would you pray with me today? Father, we thank you for the gifts and the talents that you've given us. We thank you for the thoughtfulness and the purpose that you have poured into us. And I pray today that we would recognize what those talents are and what they are for, that we would exalt you. We pray that we would be good stewards of our gifts and our talents for your will and help us to encourage one another today and to support one another and to use our gifts and talents for the glory of exalting your son, Jesus Christ. For the man or woman who is struggling at this hour, I pray, God, for a great touch upon their life, that they would simply say, Jesus Christ, come into my heart. Jesus Christ, come into my life. I do not want to neglect your spirit or the gifts that you have given me. Give me the courage to use these gifts and the humility to not use them for my glory. But God, I want to glorify you in all that I do. Help me to see the, the good works that you have given me and the ability to use them to be ready, to be ready to embrace you one day. Thank you for your willingness to forgive me. 
God, I wish to exalt you. And I thank you for coming into my heart today. 